hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jerry Clark. Welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Alongside me this evening, on this fine, fine Monday, we have Troy. How you doing, man? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I was just uh, talking to you off air about the show Letterkenny. Yeah. It's this uh, Canadian show, and it's been going strong. I think they're going to come out with a sixth season. So it, it started on, it was just like YouTube. Yeah, it was an and internet show. It went to like Crackle. And now it's getting picked up by Hulu. Yeah, that's where I was watching it this weekend. And when I was in upstate New York, I was telling you, I'll tell the audience, several people said, you seem like a Letterkenny character. And as I watched the show, I really am like an amalgamation of several of the different types. Like I got the dip in. I'm kind of like one of the hockey player jocks, especially if I'm lifted, bruh. And I got my tank top on and my flip-flops Skins on. Skins off, boys. But then I also really do relate to the hicks, as they call themselves. Like the sort of, yeah, your country, and we just hang out and whatever. And I don't, it's, a, it's a fantastic show, folks. If you like dry humor, that's a little bit otherworldly because it is based in Canada and they're true... I can't remember the name of the actual Canadian town. It starts with an L that Letterkenny's based off of. But the opening essentially says Letterkenny is a city of 5,000 people. These are their troubles. And it's just absurd situation after absurd situation. They get really upset if you mess with Canadian geese. <laughs> well, which we did today here in the great state of Alabama. You know the waters? Yeah. The development out in Pike Road? Uh, apparently, they were having some issue with about 178 Canadian geese. Wow. That were crapping all over the properties. Look. And so, the, apparently, they worked with the USDA, and the quote was they humanely euthanized about 148 geese. Man, I'm sure they could have just, like, put out the bat signal and brought the brought the country boys out, and they would... I right. mean, there would be buckshot everywhere, but... That's that's my idea. It's like I, I took Joe Biden's advice. I bought a shotgun. I bought a shotgun. Let's just go some. It's goose hunting time, boys. As long as you don't get lessons on shooting a shotgun from Dick Cheney. <laughs> that's still one of the best stories ever in politics. Canadian geese are rude, Joey. They, yeah, they are. And. You see a, a small child with the joie de vivre. You know, life hasn't really happened to them yet. They want to mm. go pet the geese. They get snapped at by the goose. Mm-hmm. There goes your innocence right there. Yep. I was almost attacked by a swan. Did you do something to the swan? No, I was just trying to feed it some bread. You were trying... Wow, so the swan was biting the hand that feeds. Yeah, literally. Wow. And I was young, but I have this vague memory of being chased by a glorious white swan. It was, I mean, talk about a fresh hell. It's yeah. like, it's a beautiful animal, and I'm just trying to feed you this delicious white bread, and now you're all up in my grill. Who knew a bird could be so vicious? There's some cognitive dissonance when faced with violence and majesty at the same time. There really is. It's like, 
if I if I'm ever you know taken out by like a glorious white Bengal tiger, it's like oh at least it's beautiful. My entrails go into its mouth. I, normally, I I would agree with you. However, white tigers are that way because they're inbred. Oh really? There's such a shortage of white tigers that they're now like kind of being born. They kind of look like a uh, uh, grumpy cat. Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. Well, at least they're adorable and deadly. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel bad sometimes when we try to fiddle with nature so much. It's like, oh, the white tiger is so beautiful. How can we keep this around? Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know my cousin Scott. Yeah. He's now living in Tyler, Texas. He's a new dad. He's posting photos with his kid all the time, and they're they're great. Yeah. It reminds me of being a kid with Scott, and like we were good pals. You Scott's know, hilarious. Sometimes man. you have cousins, and you're not that close. We were close. We were like brothers. Yeah. And uh, to see him now as a dad, and he's also become a, a trained psychologist. Yeah. So he's very insightful, always has great book recommendations. We're both enjoying the work of Jordan Peterson together. Kind of, We haven't talked about it that much, but we're both like kind of in parallel. Well, he's the one that the recommended uh, Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning. Yes, which is still one of the most influential books I've ever read. Yep. A fantastic book. Um, well, he, I don't know. Him being a dad has really kind of kept me in my lane a little bit. Like, And also my brother getting married, it's keeping me in my lane. Joey, do you have baby fever? I don't want to put it that way, but maybe. Interesting. Like, I, for the longest time, never thought, I want to be a dad. Because we both worked at Fun Zone. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, folks. Especially... Uh, seeing other people's children is the ultimate birth control. Yes. And, like, the pre-adolescents or, like, the 13-year-olds. Yeah. And you're working the rock wall, and you get to put a harness on one of these smelly, smelly kids. And I don't mean that, like, oh, kids stink. Like, they're frustrating. They're... No, this, this child has not showered. Right. They have not yet discovered deodorant. Because, I mean, they're 12. So they're not putting it on under the arms. But, my God, it's a unique stench. I feel for janitors. Oh, yeah. I really do. Especially in these schools. Oh, it's like sour milk and urine. Yeah. That sounds awful. Along with, like, the, the lunch ladies and all those administrators. I love those names, by the way. It's a janitorial administrator. Oh, so you take out the trash and clean the bathroom? Well, yes. And I think it's an honest day's work. I'm not knocking being a janitor. In fact, one of the coolest stories I read this morning... Um, I believe it's on Hustle.co, is a story of a janitor at Frito-Lays. And he had worked as a farmhand as a young boy, first-generation American um, in, I believe, Southern California. And he found a job. He couldn't read or write. But his wife helped him fill out an application, and he got a job making much better money uh, in the 80s. Today, it'd be about $18 an hour as a janitor at a Frito-Lays factory. And then one day, the CEO of Frito-Lays, these are the folks that make Cheetos, put out a call that we need ideas. And him not really knowing any better, it's kind of like a Goodwill hunting situation, he came up with this idea. Spicy Cheetos? Exactly. That's the flaming Hot guy? He's the guy who came up with the flaming Hot Cheetos. Legend. Yeah, he thought there's nobody appealing to the Hispanic market. He went out with a sales guy one day to see how they stock stores and whatnot. And realized, yeah, there's all these Cheetos, but nothing that really appeals to the Hispanic market. So he got some unseasoned Cheetos from the factory, asked permission, and took them home and came up with his own blend of spices to spice the Cheetos with. And then 
literally called the headquarters of Frito-Lays and said, uh, yeah, I'd like to speak to the CEO. And the secretary's like, are you a, a regional manager? Like, no. Or, oh, so you're, where are you calling from, this particular factory? Oh, so you're the plant manager. Like, no, I'm, I'm the janitor. He's like, all right, hold on, sir. And the guy took the call. And he loved the guy's moxie and his just going for it. That he set up a meeting, and that's where Flamin' Hot Cheetos was born. And since then, Cheetos has come out with 20 different flavors. They're all worth each one of those particular flavors and brands of flavors are worth millions of dollars each. Wow. It's amazing what he started just from, yeah, taking a shot. Like, I, I'm Hispanic. You're not making any flavors I know <laughs> and love. What if we try this? And Flamin' Hot Cheetos really are incredible. They're good. I'm, you know, I'm more of a jalapeno. Guy, yeah. the jalapeno mm-hmm. cheese. Those are good. The flaming hot. I have made the mistake too many times. Mm. This has happened more than once mm-hmm. where you eat too many. Oh, I know what you mean. And you have a BM mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. and it's red. Oh, no. And All you're concerned. Food coloring. Yeah, yeah. You're a little concerned. Yeah. Like but I... then you're like, nope, I ate flaming hot Cheetos. That was it. And so I don't eat them anymore. Yeah, it can be troublesome. Spicy food. I, I consider myself a spice lord at this point. Yeah. Having consumed Carolina Reaper peppers and Pepper X even hotter than the Reaper. I saw a video of a guy smoking one. Oh, that's not a good idea. I, why? Some people just don't like themselves. That's fair. Well, I was listening to a podcast uh, this weekend with Steve-O talking to Dr. Drew. You know Steve-O from Jackass? Yeah. And he's sort of grown up. He's no longer using. He's no longer an addict. So he said the change, what happened is he still does these crazy stunts. He's doing this thing called the Bucket List Tour, where it's a stand-up comedy special. But as he sets up the joke and the situation, he actually has the video of the stunt he did. He's like, in all the years of Jackass, we've never actually crapped on a fan. So he said he held it in for two days and literally crapped on a fan and his now fiance i think wife maybe even he knew he fell in love with her because she took it in order to get the shot she's being covered in his own feces and she's worried about am i getting the shot good with the camera gotcha and at that point he realized i love this woman but it's interesting getting into the mind, that, and that's what Dr. Drew was doing. Why would somebody, you know, smoke a Carolina Reaper pepper or do all these crazy stunts? And for Steve-O, he said it really is a matter of always like making people laugh. And there's something about putting myself in an absurd situation. And since I've been sober, like having all the emotions of being in an absurd situation that's going to hurt, that is funny to people. Like, there's something about, in particular, and I think they hit the nail on the head, there's something really funny, and this is sexist maybe, about guys getting hurt. Like, the jackass guys doing all sorts of stupid things that make them look stupid or hurt them, actually. Yeah. As opposed to, like, it's not funny when you see women do, like, a Three Stooges routine. And I think they hit the nail on the head. They think it's it's really like, how do men present themselves? Like, I'm macho. I, I know what I'm doing. It's old Bill Burjo. Be a man. Suppress your feelings and act like you know what you're doing. And so for that sort of alpha, I'm aggressive, I'm in charge, I can accomplish anything I put my mind to, to see that mentality or personality just fail and be hurt and put in a really absurd, stupid, compromising situation, it's funny. What's that movie with Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling? 
the nice guys or the other guys? The nice guys. The nice guys. The other guys is Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg. Right. The, the nice guys does a really good job of capturing that. Yeah. Like, there's that one scene where... <laughs> They're getting shot at, and the guy's like, throw me your gun, and he just totally misses on the throw. <laughs> yes. And oh, it's good stuff. Just saying it is not funny, but watching it in action, and these guys are so serious, mm-hmm. and, and he just whiffs on the throw. So funny. It is funny. You know, and I've been really thinking long and hard about uh, the future of, like, media. Like, talk radio itself. Um, but all, all these stories I just shared... I'm not getting it from national television. Like that Dr. Drew show with Steve-O is just an online podcast. You said Letterkenny that we started the show talking about began just kind of a fun online show to make fun of the town they're from in rural Canada. Um, more and more the news I get is either directly from online aggregators. I mean, I'll look at things like Drudge Report because there's millions of eyeballs on Drudge Report. should probably look where the other eyeballs are looking just to know where they're coming from. But more and more, I can do a show without once having to look at, say, cable news. Never need to. Yeah. I'll probably pull up NBC to watch these Democratic debates coming up. Bless but, you for that. Yeah, I know. Oh, good Lord. Thank you I, for aggregating all of that together in your mind and dispensing it to someone like myself who, frankly, can't be bothered. No, but I'm starting to think that the more people are absorbed in the official, you know, legacy news sources that inform us about politics and news, the more misinformed they are. You get a lot of information. Sure, yeah. You get in it for each mm-hmm. of the three slices of the pie, right. you get three perspectives. And each perspective makes you hate the other. <laughs> yes, and that's almost like the business model. Mm-hmm. Like, you're in this tribe, and your tribe's so awesome. There might be somebody in your tribe Excuse me while I, look, I do a little bit of Trump. There might be somebody in your tribe that you don't like who's kind of making some... Pro- he's being a mischievous, mischievous little cherub in your tribe. But really, we can talk about him, but it's the other tribe that we don't like. Mm-hmm. So we can get along with that mischievous, you know, ne'er-do-well, but we really don't like the other tribe as long as he's on board. Like, it is truly tribal warfare and politics. Mm-hmm. And it still goes on online. I think social oh, media, yeah, for sure. Twitter and Facebook and this stuff definitely contributes, but I think that's more of a, not an ideological thing. I think it's a structural thing. The way the, yeah. way the website is formatted? And just how people communicate. I actually think texting and communicating through writing text does a disservice to a lot of folks. Especially when it's something that is wrapped up in 140 characters or however many characters yeah. it is now for a tweet. Or, or in somewhere on Facebook, it's, it's so uh, insulated. Yeah. You get echo chambers. Or what people are willing to read. You could write something that's oh, a thousand sure. words yeah, that's on Facebook, but who's going to read a thousand word Facebook post? Yeah, you got to have the TLDR. Right, That exactly. you long didn't read at the bottom. Exactly. And I think what happens when you communicate via the written word... A lot gets lost, or it just takes forever in order to communicate where you're actually coming from. So you could have two brilliant people that are arguing over, I don't know, the nature of gravity. Is it particles or is it waves? And they can sit there and write 2,000 words, and the guy rebuts him at 2,000 words, and they go back and forth. But if you just put them in a room and had them talk for 10 minutes, they could solve the problem pretty quickly. Yeah. And so when you write something, you don't always get somebody's tone. Not everybody's very good at presenting what they actually think in the written. It really is hard to determine tone from writing, Mm -hmm. Um, especially if it's sarcasm. Oh, I constantly do myself a disservice in writing. Because people will 
read what I wrote, uh, they'll get mad at me. Like when I uh, wrote a satire piece suggesting that any male candidate, upon his declaration of his candidacy for the presidency, has to go um, through complete, utter, and voluntary castration. Wow. Yeah, I was really trying to play to the feminist of the world. Well, yeah, of course. And people thought I was serious. Well, at some point, it's like, do I, I'm not bothered enough to indicate that this is sarcasm. Right. But when it just goes over somebody's head and they take it seriously, it's like, do I really need to say that this is sarcasm? Well, and I had another one where it's just absurd stuff I find funny. I think it's the scene from uh, Saturday Night Fever where it's Travolta in, like, the spin class or something. And he's, like, you know, on his knees and he's, like, humping the air. And it's like this dance move they're doing in the class. And somebody superimposed Trump's head over Travolta's head. So it's Trump making all sorts of faces while he's you know, essentially humping the air. And I just thought it looked hilarious. It was stupid. And the the stupid Trump faces people can make him, because he makes them. Yeah. It was just funny to me. Yeah. And somebody said, is Joey not a Trump person? It's one of the comments on there. And I'm not going to call the guy out, but I'm like, what does this have anything to do with my support of Donald Trump's, like, Middle East policy or yeah. his trade policy? Yeah. It has nothing to do with it. It's He's the president. He's iconic. He's definitely a character. And so to see his head superimposed on John Travolta humping the air is funny to me. Yeah, I, I was the same way. Uh, I, was, I was trying to tell somebody his nickname. One of his many nicknames. Oh, the, yeah, he's the, got a few. Cheeto Mussolini? Yeah, I've heard that one. That's a hilarious nickname. It's, that is such a great nickname because right. it is funny. But now, but as soon just, as you say oh, it to somebody, oh, they're oh. like, you can feel that oh, the, the intended vitriol of calling mm -hmm. him Cheeto, you can, you can feel them reflect that and be like, why, why do you hate him? Well, well it, there it's is, a funny nickname. Man. There is a, a people. It's hard to figure out where people are coming from, so folks rely on. You could just be making a funny, but then some people, like uh, the guy I've had on my show, Lou Perez, he put out a comedy skit saying Doug Collins or Doug something is really being controversial this year, and it just proceeds to be hit like this struggling comedian in New York telling jokes about Donald Trump. It's like, yeah, man, you really put it out there. You're edgy. It's like, no, you and every other comedian trying to make it, yeah. especially in today's world, is making cracks at Donald Trump. So it, it's more like, are you just being silly and being fun, or are you just saying whatever you can in order to belittle the president because it serves your tribe you're around all the time? Right. And, I mean, the nickname obviously came from someone who was trying to serve their tribe. Oh, sure, but, but the nickname is funny. I heard it, and I thought it was hilarious. Well, because it rhymes. And then you tell somebody that, and they get mad at you, and it's like, whoa, this is this is funny. And then you get the response of, well, why aren't you being serious? <laughs> well, I'll tell you why I'm not being serious. You took offense to the fact that someone called Donald Trump Cheeto Mussolini. <laughs> You were offended on his behalf. Well, there's another one I shared where Trump is walking up the steps to Air Force One, and there's clearly a piece of toilet paper stuck to his shoe. <laughs> <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Yes. It's I, so embarrassing. It, not until it happens to you do you realize just how easy it is something like that can happen. Yeah. But as a child, when you see that, you're like, how did they? How were they not even paying attention? Well, and he gets all the way up the stairs and like the windy runway with their Air Force One is parked that he like turns and waves and there's still the paper on his shoe and I'm like I don't care if you voted for him you didn't vote for him you hate him or you love him that's just funny if it were longer the little 
little piece of toilet paper would be waving as well. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think we should hit a break here. I do want to get into this story I uh, saw earlier today. About that study? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's do it. And how people can relate to those who... How would they characterize somebody they disagree with? So if you're a Republican... What do you think the Democrats think? Libtard. Right. Wait, well, can you say that? I, you just did. Okay. Yeah. You, some people say it. We've actually had people say that, and then other people who are Republican, conservative, complain, because, you know, it's it's tough. You know, there's all sorts of people out there. They have feelings. Uh, let's see. Lib capable? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, somebody here is at least touched. Anyway, anyway, the show in part is brought to you by Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. Great guy. Hoping to see him sometime this week, maybe on Friday. He'll be here in studio. But he's been helping me in particular. He opened my eyes to all the home buying options I have as a potential first-time home buyer. I thought, well, I'm going to be perpetually stuck renting all the time. Especially given my current income, not complaining, just a fact. But then he showed me all the options out there where I could actually be saving money by not renting and get the mortgage interest deduction from your taxes, have an asset and build up value. That's how he changed his own life. He was working at a good job, but not his dream job in a factory here locally for a great company. But he really wanted to have more freedom. So he started investing and different real estate properties and running them out and managing them. And so out of that, he made enough money to, and he became a real estate agent along with managing his own properties. And one of the things he did, becoming a real estate agent, is he hooked up with Bo Goodson. So it's Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. If you want to call Eddie directly to buy a home, maybe you're a first-time home buyer like me, or sell your place, Eddie Bader can help you out. 322-0662 is his number. But he's also associated with the Goodson Group. He works under their umbrella, and that is with Bo Goodson. And Bo Goodson is now, they're taking new students today, Bo Goodson School of Real Estate. They meet every Thursday. It's a very active class, or it's not a bunch of textbook stuff you're reading. Because Bo Goodson's experience goes back 40 years of being a real estate agent and a real estate broker, he uses real-life examples, some as recent as a few days ago, to help teach things to the class. And you don't have to be, you know, trying to become a real estate agent to take the class. It could help you out if you're managing properties or if you're looking to buy or sell a place. Just a fun experience to understand the real estate market and how it works. So even if you're only thinking of buying a home, this is a great educational experience for you. So give them a call, 551-0225 for Bo Goodson School of Real Estate. Again, that number, 551-0225. And of course, don't forget Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group, 322 322- 0662. And with that, we'll be right back.
Joey Clark. Uh, welcome back, folks. Now, to this study, it's actually written up as an article in The Atlantic. I have to say, The Atlantic's the one news source I'll read that's sort of center-left. They have a lot of interesting think pieces. I mean, they have one today on how the baby boomers ruined everything. And the guy admits, like, yeah, it's a little hyperbolic, but hear me out. It's got an interesting argument. I don't know if you can put it all on the baby boomers. That's quite a large swath of people. Um, but I guess the point is, is that they kind of made our political institutions pretty stagnant. Like, not they didn't allow for change. So we're sort of stuck in all these legacy programs that are costing us money, probably aren't serving us the best way we could serve the population, whether you agree with, like, redistributing wealth or not. It's just, it's a 1960s model for what could be a more efficient model today. Sure. And since they're the ones who kind of started that, and they're still around, and they vote in vast numbers, and vote the most actively, uh, things aren't changing. So we'll see where that goes. But this is a different study. Um, the headline is, Republicans don't understand Democrats and Democrats don't understand Republicans. Now, this is a little different than what uh, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt talks about, where people argue, but they don't even have the same values. So if you talk about a thing like fairness, they define fairness differently. So that's a problem to begin with. But the problem here seems to be more a certain kind of partisanship. Americans often lament says the article, the rise of extreme partisanship. But this is a poor description of the political reality. Far from increasing, Americans' attachment to their political parties has considerably weakened over the past few years. Liberals no longer strongly identify with the Democratic Party, and conservatives no longer strongly identify with the Republican Party. Everybody's calling themselves an independent, though they might have an ideological lean one way or another. Right. What is corroding American politics is specifically negative partisanship. So most liberals feel conflicted about the Democratic Party, but they really hate the Republican Party. And vice versa. A lot of conservatives feel conflicted about, is it a rhino, Republican in name only representing me? Is it a true conservative? Do you support Trump or not? These sorts of things. But despite all the in-party fighting, they really hate the Democrats. So America's political divisions are driven by hatred of an out-group rather than love of an in-group. The question is, why? Well, a new study called the Perception Gap helps provide an answer. More in common, an advocacy group devoted to countering extremism that previously published a viral report on America's hidden tribes set out to understand how political partisans see each other. Researchers asked Democrats to guess how Republicans would answer a range of political questions, and vice versa. It was a survey of 2,100 U.S. adults the week immediately following the 2018 midterm elections. What they found is fascinating. Americans' mental image of the quote-unquote other side is a caricature. Now, again, this is one of these, it's one of these studies where I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> you, need to stu- you need to survey 2,100 Americans? Yeah. But I, I'm glad somebody did it, because it bears out, I have a gut feeling that seems like common sense, but I didn't do the work to prove it. Looks like they've done a lot of work to prove it. For instance, according to the Democratic caricature, most Republicans stridently oppose immigration, hold deeply prejudiced views about religious minorities, and are blind to the existence of racism or sexism. 
asked to guess what share of Republicans believe that immigration can strengthen America so long as it is, quote-unquote, properly controlled. For example, Democrats estimated about half. Actually, near 9 in 10 Republicans agreed with the sentiment. Yeah, they just want it to be legal immigration. Yeah, exactly. Democrats also estimated that 4 in 10 Republicans believe that many Muslims are good Americans. And that only half recognize that racism still exists in America. In reality, those figures were two-thirds of Republicans said many Muslims are good Americans. And four and five Republicans said racism still exists. So there you go. Unsurprisingly, Republicans are also prone to caricature Democrats. For example, Republicans approximated that only about half of Democrats are quote-unquote proud to be an American despite the country's problems. Actually, more than four and five Democrats say they're proud to be American. Republicans guess that fewer than four in ten Democrats reject the idea of open borders. Actually, seven in ten Democrats don't want open borders. If the reasons for mutual hatred are rooted as much in mutual misunderstanding as in genuine difference of values, which is a whole other problem. I mean, people on the left and people on the right just in terms of temperament, it's not even like an abstract value hold. Like, you're probably on the left either because you grew up that way and your family was that way and everybody around you was that way, or you really, your temperament really is more prone to kind of openness and everybody getting along, or your temperament's more, you're more prone to disgust easily, or you like things in their place and orderly, you might be more conservative. And it's amazing how that works out, but putting temperament and values aside, If you just don't understand one another and you think the worst possible of the other side, that's a big problem. But you think, oh, education can solve that. If we just inform people that the other side isn't some devil that they think it is, it's some caricature, then everything will work out. Well, that's where the problem is, actually. All the institutions that are supposed to educate us, they're the ones driving the misunderstanding. Looking at you, Big Three News. The perception gap study suggests that neither the media nor universities are likely to remedy Americans' inability to hear one another. It found that the best educated and most politically interested Americans are more likely to vilify their political adversaries than their less educated, less tuned-in peers. This is the one paragraph that I loved, kind of bears out all sorts of anecdotes and stories I've heard and my own experience. This one paragraph. Americans who rarely or never follow the news are surprisingly good at estimating the views of people with whom they disagree. On average, they misjudge the preferences of political adversaries by less than 10%. Those who follow the news most of the time, by contrast, are terrible at understanding their adversaries. On average, they believe that the share of their political adversaries who endorse extreme views is about 30% higher than it is in reality. Perhaps because institutions of higher learning tend to be dominated by liberals, Republicans who have gone to college are not more likely to caricature their ideological adversaries than those who dropped out of high school. But among Democrats, education seems to make the problem much worse. You elitist. Democrats who have a high school degree suffer from a greater perception gap than those who don't. Democrats who went to college harbor greater misunderstandings than those who didn't. And those with a post-grad degree have a way more skewed view of Republicans than anybody else. And I just found this study 
incredibly fascinating that the perception gap is driven by, and it makes common sense. The more you watch Fox News or MSNBC, the more you're in your ivory tower in your little bubble. So does that mean they're doing a good job or a poor job? I suppose it depends on how naive you are when looking at how the world works. That is a, a fantastic question. Because I think Fox News sees its job not to inform and give all the correct views. Same thing goes for MSNBC and CNN. Their job is to sell a product. And I'm not just talking about advertising. It's also to sell a political party. Or an emotion. Yes. And they found that fear is much stronger than love. I mean, you can inspire love. And actually, I think that's the one thing where, you know, I think it's Showtime as his new mini-series out about the life of Roger Ailes. In a, in a way, this is part of the caricature that we keep talking about. It's a bit stilted and kind of makes Roger look real negative. I think the brilliance of Roger Ailes is he took political messaging from the 80s and applied it to cable news and realized there are tens of millions of people that watch you know legacy media like NBC, CBS, ABC, and they're not getting what they want. So how about I give a little more Americana, kind of your Reagan America approach to how we talk about cultural events and what's going on, and also present a conservative, explicit conservative viewpoint with the news. And he ended up having the number one network in all of America still to this day. So he made the correct judgment. Now, is it driving us in a good direction, though? This is the thing. Are they doing their job, you asked? That's why I said he made the correct judgment in the sense of, viewership and ratings and making money off that viewership and ratings and having a very valuable asset that you can go to the political class running for office with you come on our platform you talk to our host our anchors you're going to be in front of all these eyeballs and ears that will potentially vote for you so from that perspective they're doing what they need to do msnbc under comcast they've now explicitly said we are going to give the progressive point of view to the news are they doing their job? Is that a job somebody should have in the first place? Because if that's their job, they're doing a damn good job of it. You know, it, it, so I'm just going to butt in real quick. Yeah. That's why I like Shep. Shep Smith? On Fox. He is kind of middle of the road. Because he, he just calls <laughs> it like he sees it. And sometimes he doesn't tell the party line. No, oh, no, he Sometimes doesn't. he's like, uh, I disagree with this. The president's a liar. Yeah, yeah he does. And so many people get mad at that, but I see that and I'm like, you've got some cojones, man. Well, and I wonder, I like um, it's an interesting discussion I heard between uh, Ben Shapiro and Mark Levin. Um, ben Shapiro's got a great show called Sunday Special, where he just sits down and talks to somebody for an hour. And it can be all sorts of types of people. Um, it's usually pretty good. And they were talking about the nature of the press. And do we want to press? And this is actually like partisan bias news is not new. Like right. it goes all the way back to the revolutionary period. Most of the American history of the press is like the driven by a political agenda. Sure. And but you knew where they were coming from. And in a way that can be refreshing. Like if I tune into Ben Shapiro, I know I'm gonna get a guy who's an Orthodox Jew who is more and more leaning libertarian, but he's very conservative in his approach. And so, for instance, when I watch Shapiro cover the latest decision by Donald Trump not to bomb Iran, and Shapiro doesn't like that, I disagree with Ben, but I know where Ben's coming from. Right. That sort of thing. So do we want to have news that is 
explicitly biased. This is my bias and where I'm coming from. Or do we want to try to go back to this veneer of objectivity? In a way, I think it can be done, but I think it would require much more of news directors and journalists across the spectrum in the sense they need to become political eunuchs. Like, you cannot donate to... you, And it wouldn't be a government law. It wouldn't be anything like that. It would be a self-imposed rule where I will not donate to political campaigns. I'm not going to give special privileges to any political party in terms of interviews and coverage. I'm just going to have a unique, almost uh, standoffish perspective on what's going on in the world. I will say that that would need to come with the realization from the fourth estate itself. Hmm. That... They should either stop calling themselves the fourth estate or they should have more respect for themselves rather than respect for their slant. Yes. Because if it's, and I, I say this, watch a referee in soccer. It is so incredibly difficult for us to scream consistency. We want them to be consistent and they make inconsistent decisions because there's different referees and different games and it's hard to be objective in a moment of subjectiveness yeah so for the media itself they either need to say hey the other guy's not bad we're giving you this perspective and the other guy needs to say the other guy's not bad either we're giving you this perspective or they just need to cut cut it all out and be like we're gonna go full objective Right, and I, well, and also, do you make money doing that? Because the model has been the Fox News model, and it's been very effective in the way they, they carried it. Um, the model now for so many political commentators is the podcast format, is the blog. If money, or making money, causes an inertia in change, then perhaps the perspective is flawed. Oh, I think so. If, but, if something is, I think, objectively bad for the country... This current state of tribalism that we have, hmm. especially that's uh, profited off of from the big three in the media, then perhaps it's time to shift the way things are thought of, or at least delivered to the masses, too. Now, we have all of these social technologies that allow us to do that, and as much as I would like to celebrate them, I can't. Right. Because then you have companies like Facebook and Google who make so much money off of the people whose information they sell yes. that if they were to create their own news organizations, it wouldn't be objective either. No. And actually, uh, I don't love their means and methods, but James O'Keefe and Project Veritas put out a sting video today where they got a Google executive essentially saying, like, our definition of fairness and a lot of the programs we're putting out is not a definition, her own words, the Google exec, that people who voted for the president would agree with. And her definition of fairness is essentially social justice fairness. The historically oppressed, being so historically oppressed, we need a system that's fair in the sense that that historical oppression is remedied. And that the, the view, like a, a just a fair objective system is in fact not fair because of the historical oppression these sorts of things to talk about why that's such prbs <laughs> today google also released an internal memo for their lgbtq employees yeah. who google will sometimes have pride parades it's pride month after all yeah. so they'll have their own sponsored pride parades if you as a google employee use that opportunity like some were going to do to protest the way that google 
interacts with the LGBTQ community, uh, especially regarding YouTube and how YouTube has this so-called staunch anti-harassment policy, mm-hmm. yet strives for freedom of speech that allows these people to harass uh, gay, lesbian, transgender sure. folks. Um, they were going to protest Google. And they sent out a memo today saying that if you do that and you're wearing like a Google shirt, um, you're violating the Google employee code of conduct. Yeah, it's almost like Google lets their employees go so far until it's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. you've hit sacred ground here. But at that point, it's like, yeah, that's a bit rich protecting your bottom line, Mm -hmm. especially when if the general consumer who used your product knew exactly what type of information you were extracting from them and then right. selling at a price. That's why there's a bill in Congress that, if passed, would force Facebook and Google to tell you how much your information is worth. Right, and I'm just very um, skeptical of any government intervention. I, I see the problems with Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these groups with the power, especially the data mining, yeah, selling all these things. Um, I would be more comfortable, I'll put it this way, if somebody sued and a court sort of handled this situation. I'm just very skeptical of legislatures at this point weighing in because I, I have a feeling they'll make things worse. They want to actually give us objective neut- neutral rules and regs. They'll give us some sort of stilted political agenda that half was probably written by Google's lobbyists to benefit right. Google. It just it's such a messy process that I'm I'm very skeptical of them doing anything. I find myself constantly screaming for something new in terms of how to have discourse mm-hmm. in a way that I find fair, but and this is probably a problem with myself as, and not with the platform that it's on, but every time something occurs and it's a new way of doing something, I end up finding all the faults in it. Oh, sure. I'm not intelligent enough to create my own thing that I think is fair. (laughs) And so I turn into a negative Nancy almost. Like It's usually the problem with all of us. We don't want people to watch the big three, so what do we do? Let's go to Facebook and let's talk about these things, and then all of a sudden you have these huge echo chambers, or Reddit, or Twitter, Mm -hmm. what have you. You have these huge echo chambers, and it's like, well, this is the exact same thing. This isn't what I wanted at all. Also, I think this study on the perception gap, again, folks, that Democrats don't actually understand what Republicans want and Republicans don't actually understand what Democrats want. They create evil caricatures of the opposition. Um, You know, the blame was put on, like, the media and our institutions of higher learning, these sorts of things. And there's plenty of problems. That's what we've been talking about the last 15 minutes here. But I don't think people are looking deep enough. I mean, and you can go back to stuff written right when democracy really had its day in the sun And democracy, choosing people and who will have power based on popularity contests, is usually, well, it's not always optimal. I think it's better than the divine right of kings and, like, blood succession, obviously. It's better than, like, Caesar taking over because I have the biggest army, obviously. It's better than feudal lords and with the peasants and the serfs, obviously. But it's also not perfect, And I think what's driving, why would people from one political tribe have a jacked-up view of their opposition? Mm, Because it's almost like it's built into the system that in order to win enough votes and be popular enough, you need to stir up people's resentment towards the other side. And that's often what's happened, is you don't need to prove yourself a saint in politics. You just have to prove the other guy's more of a sinner. So is that a problem with democracy, or is that a problem with the two-party democracy, Jay? I think it's uh, the two-party democracy as we know it. I think it could be 
helped a little bit if we had a more multi-party parliamentary system. Sure. Um, but then you can go to other countries. Again, it's not perfect. And at this point, we're kind of getting to, I mean, you're dealing with human nature and the lust for power. I honestly think the best system is something like what Switzerland has. They were modeled after the U- U.S. Constitution. And if we actually, the, the Swiss modeled the system after our federalist system. You have a federal government that enforces rights, national defense, all this stuff. The states do most of the action with, like, welfare and other programs and basic laws. If the Swiss took that model, but if we re-updated the U.S. model based on what the Swiss have done with theirs, we would have something like a thousand states. And the idea is this, is that most of the action should be local. If you want to set up a welfare system, it should be pretty local. Good court system for basic you know, laws and, and suits. Local as possible. And so I wish our system, and I think this is the big reason for a lot of the division, is that we're a nation of 300 million plus. We're trying to make all these decisions in one place in a government designed not to move very officially. It was designed that way. It's a feature, not a bug. Right. And so what's happened is a lot of the decision making has been pushed away from Congress and the courts into the executive branch. And so we bitch and moan over who's president. And we do it because there's a lot at stake. And so when there's this much at stake and whomever wins pisses off the other half of the country, of course there's going to be division. Mix that with national media and a lot of other drives for money making as well as virtue signaling, blah, 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 blah. I don't think it's a good road we're going down. I think it'll only create more division. Whereas if the federal election was important but not as important, like who's president, who's your senator, who's your congressman, and most of the action was at the state or even better, the local municipality, there would still be political fights. It wouldn't be utopia, but there could be a lot more play in the joints and a lot more dynamic decision-making. Um, and it's what Alexis de Tocqueville imagined. When he came, he, he fibbed. He said, I'm going to study the prison system. French aristocracy. I'm going to study the prison system in America. That was a lie. He wanted to just go to America. And he wrote his Democracy in America. And one of the things he said, the reason it works and hasn't worked in Europe and didn't work in France very well initially, was that American democracy is mostly local. Very local. So everybody kind of knows each other for the most part. It's like Letterkenny, 5,000 people in a city. Right. It's also mostly voluntary. A lot of the things the government puts its official stamp on would have been done anyway. So the government's more a backstop to make sure the things everybody already kind of wants to do is certain it'll get done. And then he said Tocqueville's language is infused with the spirit of religion. Um, But if you read into that, it's not any particular religion, but it is a sort of animating ethos. It gives people hope and purpose and the reason to care for one another. And so it doesn't really matter what denomination of Christianity or I mean you see this the Jews have been put upon throughout most of human history but they've always had a strong religious and ethnic identity and they've been pretty successful when they're not you know oppressed and it's because of that strong ethos you see this in Islam the reason they do so well in so many parts of the world is they have a strong ethos and mm-hmm. spirit of religion and I think Tocqueville's really on to something. When our religion becomes the political national arguments, and most of the decisions are made several steps removed from where you actually live, and they're being made through coercive political means, where more and more tax money is taken, or more and more debt's taken out in your name, no wonder people are at each other's throats. Yeah. And it almost makes the job of the media, of a little bit of division here or there, easy. 
Oh, for sure. They're just kind of following the trend, in my opinion. Especially when viewership and ad revenue is on the line. Exactly. You know, it it was super easy to tune in to whatever news station you had when OJ was on the loose. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And they stayed fall, and we had our eyes glued. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that was a huge turning point, obviously, in, in the news cycle. But I think there is a... I go back to what I've been thinking about with media in general, how it is becoming more narrow band, and you can curtail something to exactly a particular type of audience, and you can get exact data on what your audience likes and whatnot. It's not the traditional demographic breakdown. I think it generally will be a good thing. In the short term, I think the more the news networks lose power and eyeballs and ears, they'll become more shrill. Because they realize, oh, the thing that's keeping the people we do have is pissing them off about the other side and what the other side wants to do. But I think more and more people will start tuning into long-form podcasting, all sorts of lectures and videos. I think this will also hurt traditional academia. Sure. Is that it's almost like printing press for the spoken word and for video. Yeah, that's why, like, MIT puts a lot of their videos mm-hmm. online. Um, and it's like, it's not even, it's most of the videos I've watched have been, like, programming stuff. Right. And that's now accessible to all sorts of folks. But we've just been trained that the traditional avenues of information are CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, uh, NBC, CBS, ABC. All these traditional platforms will continue to be dominant for several years. But I think they can all see the writing on the wall, and the newspapers are definitely feeling this, that uh, they're fighting a losing battle in many ways. Yeah. And... (laughs) This is going to sound romantic, but it's not going to take away our memories, Shelly. Oh, right. You know, you and I used to sit down and watch Red Eye. Mm-hmm. And it was hilarious. Oh, and Gutfeld's one of the greats. Mm-hmm. He's got his own show now, but who is that other guy? Chris something? No. The other guy that was with him on Red Andy Eye. Andy Levy? Yeah. Yeah. Where's he? Yeah, I don't know where Levy is. I miss but him. you know how Gutfeld got that gig? And I learned this from Ben Shapiro's Sunday special. Hmm. He was writing for the Huffington Post. Back when Huffington Post started by, yes, Ariana Huffington, but also Andrew Breitbart. That's amazing. The Huffington Post starts with these two people who then became really opposed to one another. Wow. And he actually commented on somebody's blog, and it, his comment was so good, they're like, can you write for us? And out of that, Fox News thought he was so funny in his writing, can you do a show? And they gave him no help. He's like, well, I gotta know this guy Andy Levy in town. And so it... It just opens your eyes to how organic a lot of this stuff started. Right. And now you can tell they're this corporate machine, and they're maybe losing the juice that got them to the first place in the first place. So we'll see where it all goes. 